This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, and I'm here today with producer Jung Yoon Han. Hey, Jung Yoon. Hey there. So, trivia question for you. Okay. I want you to name me all of the wars fought between the United States and Great Britain. Okay. Uh, the Revolutionary War. Yes. Bing. War of 1812. Yes. And then the War of... Oh, gosh. Let me stop. Have you heard of the Pig War? The the Pig War? N- no. The Pig War wasn't actually a war. But it was this military confrontation between the U.S. and the U.K. that started with the shooting of a pig in 1859. Oh, no. So it happened on San Juan Island off the coast of Washington State, which at the time was disputed territory between the two countries. And there was this American living there, Lyman Cutler, and he found this pig rooting around in his garden, eating all of his potatoes. So he got angry and he shot it. Uh, was it his? It wasn't his pig. No. It turns out this pig was owned by an Irishman, uh, and the Irishman was not happy. He demanded money from Lyman, but Lyman argued that the pig was trespassing on his land. So they got into this big fight until British authorities stepped in and they threatened to arrest the American. And that pissed off all the other American settlers living on the island because they were like, hey, this is our land, you can't do that. So they asked the US military for protection from the British. The US sent a boatload full of troops over with some cannons. Then the British sent over five warships. Stuff was escalating, there was a threat of war. And eventually, the U.S. president got involved and was like, hey, we don't need a war with Britain right now. We've already got enough tension here at home. It's right before the Civil War. So the two countries negotiated into a kind of stalemate. The Americans built a military camp on one side of the island, the British on the other. And this lasted for more than a decade until finally they signed a treaty. That's absolutely crazy like this did not need to become a full-fledged war this is like the cat that i was taking care of goes around other people's lawns all the time i don't know it's just this feels like too much well that's the that's the wild thing right like this whole conflict it starts with the shooting of a pig and a dispute over an invisible line a border I'm Nate Hedgie, here with producer Jungyoon Han and a whole bunch of your voicemails and Instagram posts. We asked for your questions on the subject of borders, boundary lines, and edges, and we got submissions on everything, from borders in the animal kingdom to the freaky light border around black holes. Which, weirdly enough, has something to do with spaghetti. Kind of, but we'll get there. All right, so without further ado, let's open the outside inbox. So we opened this story with a pig who met a very sad end and almost started a war. So I figured in memoriam of that pig, we should start off with an animal-related question. This one was answered by our editor, Taylor Quimby. We have a question from Alex on Instagram who wants to know, what are some of the different ways that different species mark their territory? Very interesting. How do you mark yours? Uh, (laughs) 
Do you really want to know the answer to that, Taylor? <laughs> uh, I When we went camping this weekend in grizzly country, I straight up peed near the tent just in case because I was like, I want a bear to know that this is people country. That seems reasonable. Seems like it might be a good idea. So the uh, first thing I learned digging into this question is that it is important to distinguish between a home range and a territory. I did not know this. Mm. Uh, lots of animals have a home range where they live, but territory, which is the part they'll actually defend, you know, if they get into a tense situation, that is often much smaller. Right. So one way to think about it is that maybe the section of Montana where you live is your home range, Nate, but your house is your actual territory. Because, you know, if somebody busted in uninvited, you'd probably get upset about it. I would. Yeah, I definitely use some bear spray on them. But it, it is also important to say that, you know, we think about a dog marking its territory when it pees, right? Um, yeah. But really, it isn't just about territory. It's communicating a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, because animals can't just call each other up on the phone or open up their Instagram to see what their friends and enemies have been up to and where they're at. Peacegram. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is Dr. Christine Wilkinson, a carnivore ecologist and researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. And they said uh, a lot of animals, not surprisingly, do communicate with scent. So hyenas, which um, Dr. Wilkinson studies, they have anal glands that produce uh, a kind of like paste and they brush it onto grass stalks to mark territory. And it's a pretty defined boundary. Like they they really care. But also, you know, there's lots of other senses that we use to do this, like sound. Super common one that we all hear all the time, birds. A lot of birds have and defend territories and they're singing for a number of different reasons. One of them being like, this is where I'm at. Um, don't come here or come here and mate with me. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Go away now. Go away now. <laughs> it is. It does change the way you think about bird calls because I always think about them as being so friendly sounding. Yeah, exactly. So we got smells. We got uh, sounds. But, you know, sometimes it's a combination of different stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, white rhino will make these dung piles that show where their territories are. And then other rhinos will kind of come and and keep pooping on top of that same dung pile until it can be really, really huge, and it becomes also a visual marker as well as a scent marker. That's just a big sculpture of poop saying, hey, this is white rhino country. A um, couple other neat factoids. There are also territorial fish, like clownfish, which will actually keep and defend the same anemone for multiple generations. Hmm. Um, there are territorial insects, dragonflies. One of the most interesting things I learned uh, is that humans have hacked some of these communication methods in order to try and manage human-wildlife interaction, right? So um, you might know right. this out in Montana. We use animal urine to try and keep other pests or even members of the same species away from gardens and livestock and things like that. Huh. I actually did not know that. Even you can right now go purchase coyote urine on the internet for like 12 bucks. Hot tip for you there, Nate. There we go. I got to get my coyote urine out here. Hmm. But again, Nate, I think the important thing is that just like uh, we have layers of subtext to our communications with each other, uh, you know, for animals, uh, marking territory is not a one note operation. Um, I think a lot of people think territory and they think keep out. But as we've noticed from all these examples so far, sometimes it means just like showing who you are and where you stand and what you are looking for. Jugude, if you had a little bird song marking your territory, what would it be? Mm, okay, it would be like, mm, hello, back off, please. Mm, back off. <laughs> it's beautiful. Thank you. So obviously animals have bird songs and poop cairns, stuff like that to mark territory. 
but we humans have fences and property lines. And how do we actually figure out where those lines are? Taylor and producer Justine Paradise tackled that question. Yeah, this one came from Danielle in Topsom, Maine. How does surveying work with the looking through thing and the tall stick? I know exactly what she's talking about. It looks a little bit like a tripod, Mm -hmm. um, but it's often yellow. And the other thing, I feel like it looks like a wizard staff, but from the future. Exactly. So say you want to build a fence or you're selling your house and you need to figure out exactly where your property line is. In cases like that, you'll likely call a land surveyor to figure out how a property line on paper actually translates to the real world. So to find out how they work, I called a surveyor named Eric Selovich. I'm also the current president of the New Hampshire Land Surveyor Association. That little looky thing uh, that is standing on the tripod, that is an electronic distance measurer, also known as a total station. A total station. You could, you could also maybe call this an absolute unit, would be a good... <laughs> That'd be a good nickname. That's the other technical term. Mm-hmm. And that tall stick is called a rod. It's got a piece of glass on the top, a prism. Okay, like um, like the cover of uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, like a glass yes. that separates light into... Yeah, into like a rainbow that sometimes you hang them in your windows. Yes. This prism is a very sophisticated version of that, though. It's pretty fascinating to look into because no matter what angle you look at, your eye stays in the center of it. So the way it works is your looky-through thing, your electronic distance measurer, or EDM, it's got a laser. So it's going to shoot the laser from the EDM. It's going to hit the prism. It's going to get reflected directly back to the EDM. That time is measured how long it takes, and then that is correlated to the distance that you measure. All this equipment is very sensitive. You have to get the height and the angle of the prism just right, and the measurements will even be impacted by the weather conditions. Wow. The temperature and the parts per million and stuff and make sure that your EDM is calibrated. And each time you're gathering several measurements. Yeah, every measurement is two or three lines of data. You know, the horizontal distance, the horizontal angle, the vertical distance, the vertical angle, the slope distance. So by using all these measurements and doing a bunch of math, surveyors are able to get really accurate readings on things like elevation changes, the placement of your property line, all that stuff. And that's all maybe just to give you an answer about a fence line. Well, sometimes it's more than that. Uh, Actually, land surveying made the news a few years ago for doing this kind of work on a different scale. Mm -hmm. I know you like to hike. Uh, What do you know about the saga of Mount Tecumseh? Oh, I know it well because I've hiked this mountain and it's on the list of New Hampshire's 48 4,000-foot mountains, which many people really care about because, you know, we hike them as a list. And this one was on it and maybe now it's not. Yes, a surveyor in the 1800s using manual instruments and math called the summit 4,003 feet, so just over the line. (laughs) But in 2019, the USGS flew over the mountains on a little airplane equipped with a new type of remote sensing technology called LIDAR, and they measured the summit at 3,995 feet. Those eight feet make a big difference in the minds of many. It's serious. But when a group of land surveyors hiked up to the summit with their EDMs and their rods... They landed right in between. It was 3,997 feet. 3,997 feet. Just You could like pile some rocks on the top and, and make it 4,000. Just jump. <laughs> <laughs> we actually got to set a brass disc. So it's uh, one of my biggest accomplishments to be a part of a project to monument a uh, 4,000 foot mountain. It's wild. Like, I am literally sitting in my home in Montana at, I'm just 
going to check my elevation right now. Where's the compass app? I am sitting at 4,220 feet. What? So what is that? That's like 220 feet higher than the mountain Justin and Taylor were just talking about. Oh my gosh. So all I want to say is if you want... If y'all want an easy way to gain that elevation, just like come over to my house and we can just drink a summit beer. You don't have to hike and sweat and do anything else like that. Why go through all that trouble when you can just hang out with Nate? Jungyoon, can you tell folks how they can get a hold of us when they've got a question about the natural world? Yeah, you can call one eight four four go otter or record yourself on your phone and email it to us at outsidein at nhpr.org. Coming up after the break, we're going to get fourth dimensional. I'm talking far out, borders in space and in time. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Nate Hedgie with Outside In here today with Jung Yoon Han, and we are talking all about borders. So this next listener question, I think, was one of the most out-of-the-box questions we got about borders, and Jung Yoon, you answered this one. Yeah, it was pretty wild. It was from Gilman in Tucson, Arizona. And I just wanted to know how close you have to be to a black hole in order to get pulled in by its gravitational pull, like how close those objects have to be in space. Thanks so much. So in order to calculate the gravitational pull of anything, including a black hole, first, you need to know its mass, because the more mass an object has, the stronger its gravity. Now, black holes are different sizes. So let's just take the closest one to us, Sagittarius A. You might remember uh, in 2022, scientists released the first picture of a black hole in our galaxy ever taken, and that was of Sagittarius A. Didn't it kind of look like a donut, like an orange donut? Black hole in the middle and then a little ring outside. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a donut. Yeah. <laughs> now, Sagittarius A is only about 30 times wider than our sun, but its mass, it's 4 million times bigger. So it's way, way more dense. And that means its gravitational pull is about 3.54 million meters per second square or 361,000 times the gravitational pull of Earth. This, by the way, is Nofal Suitat, a space engineer with the Southwest Research Institute. So how close would you have to be to get like sucked in by a black hole like Sagittarius A? So that would depend on a few things. But if you were just floating around in space near one, you'd yeah. be in big trouble. Black holes are so strong that you'd get sucked in even if you were millions of miles away. There's actually a technical term for how this happens. You're going to get spaghettified. <laughs> <laughs> spaghettified? You're going to get sucked in, and then you're going to be elongated, like become like a noodle. Uh, and that is due to just the difference of gravity between your feet and your chest is so huge. And we call it spaghettification. 
okay, but what if I'm not just like floating around? What if I'm like on a super fast spaceship, like in that movie Interstellar? Right. So say you're in your spaceship, you'll have to go fast enough to escape the gravitational pull of a black hole. And we call that the escape velocity. And the same thing applies to rockets and satellites, everything that orbits around Earth. In order to get a stable orbit around Earth, for example, the International Space Station has to be moving at about 17,500 miles per hour. Nofel did the math and said that even if you're a million miles away from Sagittarius A, you'll have to be traveling at a speed of 596,192 miles per hour to hit your escape velocity. But if you get too close, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. There's just no avoiding getting sucked in. But on this note, have you heard of an event horizon? I've seen the movie with Sam Neill in the 1990s, but I actually don't know what it means. What, what does it mean? So inside that area, the gravity is so strong that even light can't escape it. And so it gets sucked in. And light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So that's very fast. And we don't know of anything outside of light that travels the speed of light. And even light cannot escape it once it gets over the event's horizon. So if you're that close, you'd have to be zooming around at a speed faster than light to escape a black hole. Maybe if Buzz Lightyear was flying around a black hole, he'd be okay and he wouldn't get spaghettified. But the rest of us are kind of, we're kind of screwed. Toy Story 5. Here you go. <laughs> Toy Story 5 of Rent Horizon. <laughs> I'd watch that. Okay, we are wrapping things up with one last question about borders. Here's producer Felix Poon. So this question is from Emily in Washington, D.C. How do historians decide how to categorize chunks of time? And why is it the further back we go, the bigger the time periods are? Like the different dinosaur periods, which were millions of years. In comparison, the life humans live today is really fast-paced. So how do we determine the borders between all of these time periods? I have never thought about that before, but she's totally right. Like the 60s versus the entire Jurassic age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how we categorize time totally depends on who's doing the categorizing. Geologists, for example, they categorize time by looking at changes that they see in the rock or sediment layers. And so, for example, let's take the end of the Mesozoic era, which is when dinosaurs went extinct. Where at one point you've got tons of microfossils, and then you've got a layer of iridium, which is brought to Earth by an asteroid. And then you've got very few microfossils. Okay, so they've got their own special time scale. Right. This, by the way, is Dagomar de Groot. And Dagomar's not a geologist. He's an environmental historian. And the way geologists and historians divide up time is pretty different. Like, geologists literally drive a big bronze spike into a layer of rock or sediment that represents the end of an era and the beginning of another. Wait, literally? That's what they do? Yes. <laughs> That's fun. And there's this whole process to decide where it goes that involves committees and voting and everything. Wow. Whereas historians, they don't really have to agree. You know, the Stone Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age, right? Yeah. Well, those are very Eurocentric notions of time, and not all civilizations go through these ages that are categorized so neatly by metals. Hmm. Another example, the Little Ice Age, is this period when average global temperatures dropped by as much as 2 degrees Celsius. 
Some say it started with big volcanic eruptions in the 13th century, but others say it didn't start till circulation patterns significantly changed in the oceans and atmosphere in the 16th century. Which starting point you choose just depends on what part of the story you want to emphasize. So wait, though, back to the geological ages, like what are we in right now? So technically, we're still in what's called the Holocene, which started a little under 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But some are saying we're already in a new age called the Anthropocene, marked by when humans started altering the planet. A group of geologists are saying the Anthropocene began in 1950, and they're proposing to put a bronze spike at this Canadian lake because there's geochemical traces of nuclear bomb tests at the bottom of it. Huh. But none of this is official yet. They still have to go through their whole process. Okay. Anyways, to get back to Emily's question, historians are categorizing all sorts of smaller periods in human history. So if it seems like these historical periods are shorter than geological periods, it's because they are shorter. Anatomically, modern humans have only been around for the past 300,000 years. And for the vast majority of that time... 290,000-odd years for all hunters and gatherers. And then... About 10, 11,000 years ago, we had domesticated enough species that we started to be able to live in one place. And finally, only in the last 200 years, industrialization changes things again so that our population again explodes, our living standards explode. Some people are even calling the last 70 years the Great Acceleration because of how fast technology, human population, and environmental changes are happening. I mean, the older I get, you know, the faster time seems to go. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms. We don't have time to get into your aging process, Nate. <laughs> I mean, at this point, what is time, you know? Exactly. Jung Yoon, what would you call your era at New Hampshire Public Radio? Like, what, what would you name it? The exploratory era. Just exploring all these different random topics like space and black holes and then lab mice another day. It's just random stuff. Pretty ridiculous job, right? <laughs> In a good way. In the best way, yes. This episode was produced by the whole lot of us. So me, Nate Hedgie, as well as Jung Yoon Han, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, and Felix Poon. It was edited by Taylor. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. And remember, if you've got a question about the natural world, give us a call at 1-844-GO-OTTER, or you can send a voice memo to outsidein at nhpr.org. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, Nate here. This September, Outside In turns 250. That is, we'll have made 250 episodes of the show. Yay! It's our semi-quincentennial. To celebrate, we are hoping to hear from you. We want to know, what's an episode of Outside In that you would recommend to a new listener and why? The easiest way to share yours is to call our hotline, 1-844-GO-OTTER and leave a voicemail with your name, location, and, of course, the episode you recommend and why. We might share yours here, on the show, in our free newsletter, and on social media. We'll also put this info in the show notes. Thanks in advance, and cheers to bringing you more episodes of Outside In for many centuries to come. <laughs> <laughs>